0: Welcome to the Family Business Audiocast on LinkedIn. I am R. Adam Smith, creator of this Audiocast series. As an entrepreneur, investor, founder, investment banker, and board leader the last 25 years, I'm fortunate for my many experiences within the family firm industry. A warm thank you to our live audience on LinkedIn today and for those listening in the future. A brief comment on why I created this broadcast. Private companies are a passion of mine, having grown up in a family of entrepreneurs, and having engaged for two decades in deals, strategic transformations, investments, and boards with an array of fascinating family enterprises, family firms, and family offices. i found this series to offer a useful platform for listeners to hear from veterans, academics, and leaders in the vast family firm ecosystem. Whether you're a family business owner, building, running, or advising a family office, or just expanding your family office activities, I hope these conversations are useful and enlightening. now it's time to turn our attention to our accomplished guests on today's episode. I am pleased to host our esteemed guest today, His Imperial and Royal Highness Sandor Habsburg. Your Highness, welcome to our conversation today. I'm gonna start with a few words on His Highness, one of the greatest thinkers of his time today. He is active in private governance, leadership, international relations, and philanthropy. In addition to being a leader on the European intellectual scene, consistent with his family legacy for centuries. He's active in family companies and on boards. He has an in-depth understanding of international agreements, international finance, fiscal policy, and good governance. Most recently, he has been active in the area of AI and the distributed ledger system, as it may be applied to very sustainable programs, and he has extensive experience in thermodynamics as it applies to energy conservation going back to 1985. His professional life has taken him from his work as a research engineer where he received several patents and from the founding of several companies to his philanthropic work with his wife, Herta Margaret. His Highness is a direct descendant of Empress Maria Theresa, Catherine the Great of Russia and Queen Victoria of Great Britain. And he is a member of the Tuscan and Spanish lines of the family. He is dedicated to preserving traditions, values and helping the less fortunate and has been elected as Grand Master of several historical orders, including the Imperial Austrian Order of Franz Joseph. Uh, we're delighted to have you today uh, on this audiocast, and we'll get started when you're ready.
1: A pleasure to meet everybody this evening. Thank you for that very nice introduction, uh, Adam. And I just had a couple of minutes' time to see who all is uh, listening this evening, and it's really nice to see that we have people from almost all parts of the world this evening. Good evening to everybody.
0: Yes, I see that. Okay, let's get going for about a half hour or so. Let's talk about heritage. Your family dates back almost a thousand years in the European aristocracy and ruling families. On the one hand, you can look at a dynasty that you're part of, such as the Austro-Hungarian Empire, as a government and political entity, and on the other hand, as a family-related business. Earlier, you and I discussed how a governing empire seeks to, quote, create a level playing field, unquote and to instill core values that last in society please share with us a brief comment on your heritage and how it relates to family business as well
1: thank you very much adam well as as adam put it very succinctly if you have been trying to run a country for generations you or let's say It's important to understand, particularly in the Austrian-Hungarian context, that you have lots of cultures, cultures, lots of origins, lots of languages, lots of religions. And as a monarch, you are concerned that each one should have his rightful place. So let's say you call this a live and let live philosophy. So if you now look at a family office and you look at your activities and business as a whole, then you try to make the, use the same rules to apply to your business activities in other words uh, if you're doing business in austria you will do it according to the rules and cultures that exist in austria if i'm going to do the same thing say in sudan in africa then i will take into account of doing business in sudan as the sudanese do and and take into account their way of doing it and their culture and be very cautious not to uh, put upon them that what I have from where I come from.
0: Right, it's a very delicate matter. Uh, Thank you for sharing that. Let's talk about sustainability. Sustainability is a vital element in our society, our climate, institutions, our companies, and our families. And maintaining sustainable family enterprises and firms and systems also requires as we have discussed a holistic perspective That avoids compartmentalization uh, As we discussed together and sometimes narrow linear short-term thinking and much as the australian austrian empire lasted for centuries The austrian empire had many family businesses and family values and family systems that created a powerful commercial ecosystem industrial ecosystem military ecosystems That last today in various forms you once said because only when we know our history can we promote peace So please do share your views on this dynamic and the need to keep the music going.
1: Well, maybe I'll I'll, I'll start with saying that there's a saying that says history repeats itself. Well, in a a certain sense it does because we forget what happened in the past and then we go about doing things and we make the same mistakes. So if we have the ability to learn from the past and so say, well, that's what, we, we see what worked and produced peace and, and harmony and in which things don't work and produce the contrary. We can, we can use history and our past to understand that. But what's very important is, I think, to humanity as a whole, and it's probably the biggest threat of globalization as a whole, is that people lose their identity or have a fear of losing their identity and then they tend to rebel. So it's it's very important in this context to when we think of sustainability is to, to try to set a way forward with a say, I don't want to call it rules, because rules are too strict. You need to give give the system without what you're trying to do a set of tools and try to instill in the persons how they can use these tools to take care of whatever happens in the future, because we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. So we try to give our present generations and the next generations vehicles that are as flexible as possible to take advantage of opportunities or change the direction of the endeavor of the com- corporate companies, the uh, companies, uh, families' activities, to... Uh, adjust to the changes that take place and if we look at the history of a lot of large families and their corporations it's very interesting to see how they evolve and the ones that evolve they progress they continue to exist and if they do not evolve then they tend to run into crisis and fail because the times have changed but they did not change so and, and you will see the same thing as, a, as, as an extreme example. People have said to me, well, don't you, wouldn't you want the monarchy to return? And I said, you're asking the, the wrong question. You should ask me, how do I think a monarchy today would look like 100 years after it ended? It would be completely different than it was 100 years ago. Why? Because social structures and people have evolved. They have changed. We have a different level of education, we have a different worldly understanding, we have a whole different set of issues that we did not have 100 years ago. So the idea of going back doesn't function. Going forward, looking forward does. But of course we don't know what happens tomorrow. So in the sense of sustainability and the holistic uh, way of looking at it, you have to try to look at all facets of what is happening around you and not just focus on the very narrow margin of your present activity. I hope I answered your question, Adam.
0: Yes, we could probably stay a couple of hours on that. Let's continue.
1: <laughs> it's a very, very involved, yes. Yeah.
0: Maybe let's go over to uh, sustainability in terms of uh, the impact of good in the world and a bit on the flame of peace that you have uh, founded and you work closely with your wife and many philanthropic Activities uh, with her to maybe share a bit with the audience about the flame of
1: peace um, This is a good one well, let's say I Like to, I like to start with a say very fundamental way of thinking the The way of thinking is based on respect and not tolerance Why respect? Well, if we respect one another we can agree to disagree which is very good, if we respect others and respect our nature and our environment, then we wouldn't do a lot of the things that we do. We wouldn't pollute, for example. If we respect our rivers, we will not dump anything into it. Um, And this is the, the guiding principle that we use also in our organization, which is known mostly by name of its award which is the flame of peace the organization is actually called the association for furtherance of peace with headquarters in vienna and we work in quite a few countries in the world and the interesting thing is this this organization is based purely on respect it is 100 percent volunteer it has no employees but it has about 50 about 10 let let's say on average uh, volunteers working in the world trying to help people and connect people and let's say, provide those who don't have something for there where people have more than they need. And it works. Why? Because it works because people want to do something. So if you combine the idea of respect and motivating people, then you have a pretty good um, formula for for success, uh, for sustainability, and and of course also for... um, protecting one's identity, one's heritage, one's culture, uh, all the beautiful things in life. And maybe this one thought to the way of thinking is to add that if you think of our society, if we value things, then we will have a different attitude of how we go about it. In other words, if you buy something because you cherish it and value it because it's nice, it's beautiful, and you enjoy it, you will also take care of it. If you're buying something just at a utilitarian point of view, it tends, up, tends to be of, of minor quality, cheap. It will fail at some point. You will throw it away and you will buy again. And this will repeat itself. And what happens that way? Well, you start uh, consuming a lot of resources and you start producing a lot of trash and waste. If you did it on a value-based way of thinking then then all of these other things just would not happen because you just don't live that way and this is of course very contradictory to consumer society but this is that what we do and this is what we try to promote uh, within our organizations and at the same time using this philosophy to help other people mostly to help people help themselves
0: True. We can, I think, we can admit that capitalism is one of the the greatest institutions in modern society, but it's far from perfect, and we need more of a caring capitalism, which is a, f- a phrase, it's, you know, it's, uh, charity that I, I support. But I like this concept of value based consumption. So maybe we'd like to hear your thoughts on that that paradox of of capitalism and maybe.
1: That well, you know, capitalism. Uh, well, uh, I'll take a very say maybe. Uh, very extremely critical opinion. Capitalism, socialism, communism, all of these things are theories. They're theoretical ideas of how humans think and will act. But it's only a theory. So it's it's very nice to philosophize about it. But it, it usually does not take reality and human nature into account. But the the problem, the actual only problem that we have, let's say from all of these I don't think you can consider actually strictly speaking capitalism as an ideology as, as communism or socialism or these things would be capitalism is just a way of trying to describe how, how the economy is functioning. Yes. And it's, it's, it's a for-profit sort of way of thinking. Yes. Um, But what we have lost and, 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 and this is probably the, the correcting factor that, that could be, doesn't have to be, but could be quite uh, fundamental, is, as you said, we have to put value back into it. In other words, if we buy, in each person's own opinion, of course, things that are beautiful, that are nice, that we will cherish, that we will take care of, um, it would combat your classical definition of consumerism. In other words, I'm not just buying something for the sake of buying it. I'm, I I stopped I stopped to think. I'm not going to buy junk because if I buy junk, it's gonna it's not going to serve me as well as if I buy quality or something that will endure not just for me but will endure for generations. So this would dramatically um, curve the mass production and to produce as cheaply as possible it would change capitalism back to producing less, but therefore of higher value and and, and lasting longer. So if you think within our present economic system, if we as the consumer buy and use our power as citizens to buy things along this logic, industry will adjust to it quite automatically. And it would have a lot of... um, positive effects. Most of all, uh, protecting our environment and not producing lots of trash and dumping it recklessly uh, or burdening the environment.
0: I'm sure you find it a bit ironic that the definition of sustainable capitalism was only instituted officially in the Oslo Symposium of 1994 and 1992 in the UN Conference of Environmental Development, considering that you're your family tree goes back to uh, 1,273 with Rudolf I, the king. Um, so the idea of sustainability being relatively new is is concerning. Um, I'm currently reading uh, David Attenborough's book, which um, highlights the importance of, of being connected to nature, right? Like you are, and not just climate, but respecting the world. Um, it's, it's quite a longevity of perspective that you have. What do you think of? How, what we can do more on the climate side
1: well what we can do on the climate side I think is is, is almost infinite um, but you're mentioning when when people come up with terms and terminologies and I call catchy phrases you know to say sustainable capitalism um, the capitalism itself is not the problem it's the problem that we have is the total disregard of uh, for nature and the environment. That's actually our problem. It's not capitalism, it's not the problem, but it's this disrespect. So if if we go back to that very, very simple fundamental thing and say we treat everything with respect, then it's it makes it makes everything afterwards in much simpler by which rules we will be abide. Well, you don't need a lot of rules so long you're not out to, uh, make a quick buck as they would say you know and instead of say well I can do whatever I want to and who, who cares what happens afterwards um, so, you know people ask me you know what I think about co2 for example and I say, well co2 is a very very important uh, chemical combination I said without co2 you won't have any plants so you know if we have too much co2 in the air It means our plants are going to grow better, so when we, for example, have greenhouses, we pump CO2 into them to make the plants grow better. Um, So is CO2 the problem? I don't think CO2 itself is the problem. Um, It's all the other pollutants that we're producing which are deadly, which are the problem. Uh, CO2 happens to be a byproduct of combustion, but there are many, many other things that are much more terrible. Um, those of you who are, you know, were around in the in the eighties, you know, nobody was talking about CO two back then. People were talking about fluorinated hydrocarbons, i.e., refrigerants like freedom, air conditioning systems. You know, it's creating it's creating the the hole in the ozone layer, and it's destroying the environment, and we're all going to die. <clears throat> um. I think people particularly or large organizations are looking for the problem and a solution. And unfortunately, I don't believe in a problem and a solution. The problem is you have to look at it really holistically. Um, You know, we, we need to work in a clean and proper way in everything we do. So the couple of automobiles themselves driving around isn't a problem. If you, if you look at, take it from example, the CO2 in our environment, um, there are many things that produce a lot more CO2 in our environment than do automobiles. You know, but automobiles produce all sorts of other waste and other problems that are associated with their production, with their recycling, with their destruction, with their storage when they have expired. Uh, useful life. And all of these things are far more viable much more important than worrying about the CO2 if you look at it in a holistic point of view. I had um, a very interesting conversation with some people in the automobile industry and I said look I think I think we can solve our problem really quickly. Um, Of course I was trying to be provocative and I said to him look we're simply gonna tell everybody To protect the environment, they should drive their cars now twice as long as they have been driving them so far. So I'm a bad example because I tend to drive my cars for about 10 years. But let's say your average car gets driven somewhere between three and five years. So let's change that to six and 10 years, and we immediately will produce only half as many cars as we need, which means we only need half as much resources, we need half as much energy to produce them, and so forth and so forth and so forth. Of course, this would contradict exactly that what the automobile industry would like. But if you look at it practically and said, if the automobile industry built cars that we will enjoy and value and we will keep them for twice as long as we have kept them so far, then it would dramatically improve the problems that we have out there. And it would not have that effect that a lot of people say it's going to put a lot of people out of work because to make things better and do it properly, and to do things in an orderly fashion takes more people. And and more people doing something productive rather than non-productive work.
0: Right. Just for number reference, there's 1.5 billion vehicles in the world. 85 million are made a year. So it's not a small number.
1: Right? <laughs> it's not a small number. It would have a mega impact. It's, you know, if... There, there are other things, you know. We we spend a lot of time shipping stuff all the way around the world, which is probably not really necessary. If uh, the example that you and I talked about is, uh, I love this example, is if I go to a carpenter and have him make a table in four chairs for me and my family, or six chairs, then you still, yeah, okay, my computer I thought was shutting down. Mm-hmm. Then I'm going to have a table in, in six chairs which will last me for my life and probably a couple of generations afterwards. But if I go the other way and go down to a supermarket or a department store and simply buy something quickly, then, then I'm probably going to do that several times in life. But my point was if I go to the carpenter, it's the local guy who's going to be making it. It's not going to be made, you know, three continents away and shipped halfway around the world so that I can buy this inexpensive table and six chairs. So the way we go about this and how we deal with things would dramatically change um, all of the things that we see in the geopolitical problems that we see, for, for example, as we said, in the pandemic. And as Adam asked in the question of how do I see, you know, sustainability, I see sustainability very strongly also from uh, let's say a point of sovereignty of countries if countries cannot feed and supply energies to their own people then they're not really sovereign countries anymore and i think we need to focus much more in producing our own food and producing those things that we need locally right we talked about this, this would dramatically change the scape- the, in the world political landscape as well for
0: sure absolutely we talked about the importance of Effective sovereignty and let's talk a bit more about that from a leadership perspective I see sovereignty can be generally defined as supreme authority and the sovereignty entails hierarchy within a state but also external uh, autonomy for the states and it can be assigned to people or institutions that have this this authority um, but you were saying earlier with me that the authority requires the ability to sustain a society over time and provide these basic needs and that's very similar to a large family business, which has sovereignty based in their own values to excel and, and survive and, and thrive. You, you mentioned about the importance of letting people live, which essentially must entail empowering the best in, in each people. Maybe talk a bit about that theme a bit of letting people live, or what do you mean by that?
1: Let's, let's say a country a country which can feed itself and can supply its country, its people with energy and certain, all the basic things of life, cannot be put under pressure or made to do things in ways they don't, the people that are living there don't want to live that way. And the same goes for a family business. If that family business is critically dependent on many external factors over which they have no influence, then they will be managed and they will be controlled and they will not, won't have the flexibility to make their own decisions for themselves. So when you structure a family business or family office and and look at what things you are investing in and how you invest in, it it really makes a lot of sense to invest in those things which you really understand. You have in-depth knowledge or you have in-depth competency for it and you really understand what's happening and that you have sufficient influence to take those measures of how to to modify things as, as as time goes on i think that i think that's very very important in both cases in the case of sovereignty and in the case of a of a of a company
0: thank you your highness is part of one of the most colorful and powerful eras of modern european society the austria hungary empire a bit on that. One of the Europe's major powers at the time, the Austria-Hungary Empire was geographically the second largest country in Europe after the Russian Empire, and the third most populous after Russia and the German Empire. The empire built up the fourth largest machine building industry in the world after the United States, Germany, and the UK, and also became the largest, third largest manufacturer and exporter, and it constructed Europe's second largest railway network after the German Empire, not to mention owning a very large landmass, uh, which is one of the largest in modern history. It would be great to share with us one or two of the stories of your family heritage that you'll feel define the legacy and mission of the Austria-Hungarian Empire over time. Uh,
1: well, I, I think... Uh, well, I think... It's really hard where to start where to start in, in, in this. I think that maybe... One little tad bit of history, which which will help some persons, a lot of the people here on this call maybe understand, the similarity between the United States of America and the Austrian-Hungarian Empire is much greater than most people would think. One is that the Constitution of the United States was written in the same year that Empress Mary Theresa and her son Joseph II implemented the first book of law that applied to all persons, regardless of creed, status, or whatever within the empire. And it's very, very interesting to see that the basic principles that you that are reflected in that book of law. Is, are exactly the same principles that you find in the Constitution of the United States. If you look at the structure of the United States with its 50 states, its governors, each state being actually a country within itself, independent, and having a a president which is pretty close to becoming, as you can get to a monarch actually, um, within with the limitation that he just gets re-elected or gets elected. But the government and the federal government structure is amazingly similar to the multinational structure that we had in the Hungarian, Austrian-Hungarian Empire. The, the uniqueness is that all of the states within the empire were sovereign states. They just had a common head of state. This is the, the biggest difference to the U.S. And, of course, that that the system of elections in the United States goes much further than we did have it in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. But we had a House of Parliament with a Senate and a House of Representatives, just like you have in the United States. So it's it's amazingly similar. And if you ask me, where would Austria-Hungary be today from that point of view, I think that the evolution and the level of education and development of society would have led us to a quite a similar structure as the United States has today, which also has evolved a lot in the last 200 years. So I think this is maybe that which should give people th- things to think about. And the United States, for the most part, is very similar that people believe that people should do things how they feel they should do it and no other people shouldn't tell them how to live their lives. And uh, I spent the better part of seven years in the United States, so I do know the U.S. quite well. Um, And there's a lot to be said for thinking this way.
0: Well, thank you for sharing that. We have some Europeans that are missed, of course, here on the call, uh, Spiros and and Monica and Ruby from France, Comran from Pakistan, uh, Andrea as well from Slovakia. So it's great to discuss the global perspective um, as well of, uh, of these issues. Well,
1: if, if I throw in there for all of the Europeans here, if you think back to the times of the Holy Roman Empire and you look at that and how how it functioned and how we got maybe a little bit off track from there, uh, we had all the, all the components to actually have a wonderful structured society. But when certain structures got put in place that that were rather counterproductive to that way of thinking. But if you look at the European Union, except for a couple of critical issues, we'll we'll probably get there eventually, but it's still going to take some time.
0: It takes a while to produce lasting systems, of course, Uh, and that's very relevant to the topic of the audio cast in a way is looking at the ability to have longevity and to nurture that longevity. And family firms, which people say comprise over 80, 80, 85% of the world economy. So it's quite a large ecosystem. One last item, and related to that topic of the leaders and organizations that stand out, let's talk a bit about heroes. In today's world, heroes seem to be in shorter supply. I think that our modern press empathizes uh, short-term information and our leaders get often. in Somebody consistent in their values or get caught up in compromise. And also our society extracts a heavy toll on those that rise to the top. It would be great to hear from you with your your positive perspective on the world, some thoughts on heroism and who you might respect in today's world.
1: Well, this is a good one. A um, really good question. We didn't talk about this one before, so I have to really think hard. I think that what the world is looking for the world is looking for leaders okay and they're looking for leaders who set an example and we have tried to replace those leaders with what as adam is calling heroes people who you know like movie stars you know people who who we see and we can identify with but the problem is that that what we see tends to be fictional and not and not reality um, real leaders who are apparent let's say Mahatma Gandhi would be a wonderful example of such a leader who set an example and people could look up to him and say well you know I don't know if I can manage that but I can try to get close to that um, and maybe and Adam and I touched on this before, maybe together in family offices, because it does control a lot of the financial wealth that exists in the world, are concentrated in these offices, in these families. If we set an example and a visible example, not just working behind the scenes as we have done in the past, but become more visible, in a way that the everyday person can say wow look at that guy he's really successful but at the same time he's out there or she is trying to help people and make life better and do that actually which we have been taught to say our governments will do for us but unfortunately those of us who are very working very hard in the nonprofit area do realize that more people fall through the system than actually people who are being helped in many cases. So there is a huge opportunity, I think, of not only... Yes, by setting example, by by showing the way to do things and being above politics and get out of this, you know... Good guy, bad guy type of situation, and get out, get out of all the infighting that is taking place in politics, and set a, a standard and to so set an example that even politicians could follow.
0: I think to create something tangible like that, um, which is really perceptible by by touching it, you know, intellectually, emotionally,
1: would be very <clears throat> would be very well, powerful yes the the, we have to um how how should i say we're talking about sustainability in 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 the sense of a family office well the first thing that everybody thinks about that we think about generations right we're not thinking about the next five years we're thinking about the next 20 to 40 years right but our our political system today has reduced political thinking usually just to the period of election, which is you know four or five years, it's it's an awful short period of time. And of course, a politician who is only in office for this period of time, this is the only time in which he can effectively do something. So it it it. Funnily enough, if you look at at our historical development, in, take the last thousand years or the last five hundred years, it doesn't really matter. The the things that have lasted and have been built, which we look back on and say, look at Rome, look at you know the beautiful buildings, look at all of these things. Well, these weren't built because somebody was thinking in the term of five years. No, they were thinking in terms of generations. So I think that families and family offices do actually have a huge responsibility because they have the ability to think in generations. Unfortunately, our typical politicians and political parties do not have that ability because of the electoral system that limits them in that. But we as family offices don't have that limitation. And and in a certain respect, it gives us the responsibility to be the component which is thinking in generations. So when politics is going in a certain direction, then it's upon us to maybe talk to some people and say, well, maybe shouldn't we go a little bit in a different direction because that is not going to take care of the future and take care of our children and grandchildren.
0: Absolutely. You know, we'll wrap up soon. I, we were mentioning, uh, the vast array of interests, um, and knowledge that you have, perhaps it's time for you to write a book. And one of the topics <laughs> could be uh, the series on the successful European rulers could be interesting from Charlemagne to, uh, Louis Fourteenth of France, Queen Victoria, of course, uh, Matilda Tuscany. There's lots of, uh, fascinating um, topics in in the European uh, construct. Um, well, thank you for your your discussion today on on heroes and sustainability. I think we'll have another conversation on the code of living as we have been discussing uh, with in the current environment and the evolution and expansion and institutionalization of the family firm enterprise. Uh, the world enterprise really it's quite it's quite large I think people underestimate it so it's wonderful to have you today connect the dots between a legacy and heritage of a um, a uh, larger cultural uh, empire and dynasty to the, the microcosms of family business which collectively are quite substantial and I hope you enjoyed these topics uh, today and um, you know what else is on your mind you'd like to share with with the audience
1: well, I have I have one last thought because the way you just are things together, um, I won't name I won't mention company name, but I was speaking with a member of one of the more prominent industrial families here in Europe. They're really a multinational world world business today. And and we were talking about legacy, and we were talking about sustainability, and. Everything that we've actually talked about this is about principles and values, right? Such as respect. And in their family business, which is really a huge, uh, you know, it would rival GM, for example. Uh, he said, look, if a member of the family wants to be on the board of directors or work in the firm, he's welcome to do so if he's qualified and he's able to. But like he himself, he he didn't feel like he was ready for that. So he did not participate, but he was a shareholder, of course. He said, but his job was to make sure that, you know, he didn't feel he was good enough to do the job, but his job was to make sure he had people who had the ability to do the job. What his job was then to make sure that the corporation was following the principles that they were felt was important to sustain the, 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 the family's business over generations. And I think that's maybe one of the most important lessons when we think of families in generations. Not everybody is qualified to do that, what we would normally expect of them. But if we leave them the freedom to say, well, I don't think I'm good enough to do it, but I think I'm able to make sure that we have people who have the qualifications to do that, what is necessary to create that sustainability. I think that's maybe a little tidbit that makes one think about how to how to do this in in the long term for that uh reference to
0: qualification, which is quite a subjective uh, topic because it's always in the eye of the, of the beholder but i I did catch this this topic in your recent conversation uh, with your colleague Thomas uh struck uh on, on a recent uh a recent event with Alexander uh, Galambos talking about creating a circle of experts around you um, in the family business, but also relates to government and life, life as a whole as well. Right. I assume yes. you have some, you some friends you refer to for trusted advice yourself.
1: Yes. I mean, they, you know, somebody, somebody wants asked me, you know, you know, your family was around for so long, you know, what was their secret, you know? And I said, look, I don't think there's any magical secret, but just think of it this way. Whatever they had and whatever they had, had to work for the, most, for the smartest guy in the family, but it also had to work for the, say, the stupidest guy in the family. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been able to do his job and would not have, it would not have continued the family's legacy. And from my point of view, it is to be well-informed, respect people, respect everything around you. And I think you've got a pretty good set of tools to work with. And yes, you need lots of advisors, you need a lot of people who filter your information. But if you think of all the great and successful people out there, they did it because they succeeded because they took decisions, they followed through and they stayed behind it, they didn't give up. And you know, it's it's those, I think, very simple things which every human being in this world is capable of doing. That, is the, is the, say, the, uh, the formula to success and sustainability. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. It's been great today. Um,
0: I'd like to thank our Family Business Audiocast attendees today, as well as our esteemed guest, His Imperial and Royal Highness Sandor Habsburg. Sandor, thank you
1: so much for today. It was terrific. Adam, great pleasure. Thank everybody for listening and putting up with me.
0: <laughs> a, it's wonderful we'll do it again and also Glad, like,
1: gladly anytime at any on any subject whatever you wish
0: good we will we will thank you and for uh, joining us in your in your late evening also i think um, we should thank the family business center and its founder professor monica nadova kroslakova phd of the university of economics of Bratislava, for arranging today's conversation our mutual friend thank you very much monica
1: Yes. Thank you. Thank you very much. Because without her, it would not have happened.
0: Exactly. Okay. This is Arna Smith signing off. Stay tuned for the next episode of the Family Business Audiocast on LinkedIn.
1: Thank you.